This afternoon, we are departing a bit from the usual order of the catechism, and instead of Lord's Day 16, we'll turn to Lord's Day 27, and hopefully next Sunday, the Lord willing, we'll go back to Lord's Day 16. We'd like to have a closer look this afternoon together at question and answer 74 of Lord's Day 27. So question and answer 74, which is the last question and answer of that Lord's Day, should infants too be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism, a sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the new covenant. I'm also going to read a portion of Article 34 of the Belgian Confession, probably it's not on a slide for you this afternoon because I haven't told the sound people to get it all ready, but there is in the last part of Article 34, the Belgian Confession says something also about this same matter when it says, for this reason we reject the error of the Anabaptists who are not content with a single baptism received only once and who also condemn the baptism of the little children of believers. We believe that these children ought to be baptized and sealed to the sign of the covenant, as infants were circumcised in Israel on the basis of the same promises which are now made to our children. Indeed, Christ shed His blood to wash the children of believers just as much as He shed it for adults. And therefore, they ought to receive the sign and sacrament of what Christ has done for them as the Lord commanded in the law, that a lamb was to be offered shortly after the children were born. This was a sacrament of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, because baptism has the same significance for our children as circumcision had for the people of Israel, Paul calls baptism the circumcision of Christ thus far. After the proclamation of the gospel, we'll sing together from Psalm 12, the fourth stanza. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, this afternoon we turn our attention to what is often a sensitive as well as a rather controversial subject. Some of you have family and perhaps friends who do not agree with you when it comes to holy baptism and to who its recipients should be. You may believe that baptism is for believers and for their children, but others, however, are of the opinion that baptism is only for those who are adults or who can make a mature confession of faith. Still others believe that infants and children, while they cannot be baptized, can be what is called dedicated to the Lord. So obviously this is a subject that generates a bit of division and sometimes disagreement, and that can hurt. So you might wonder, why are we dealing with it then this afternoon? Why not ignore this particular matter altogether? Why not avoid everything that hurts, everything that divides? 
But you know, in one way or another, that would be an abdication of our responsibility. In the first place, we would then be bypassing what we consider to be a very clear and obvious biblical teaching. After all, this has everything to do with how we read, interpret, and understand the Holy Scriptures. And it has also everything to do with the unity of the Word, the importance of the sacrament, and our view of the church of Jesus Christ. In the second place, if we ignore this teaching, we would be negating what we confess together. This afternoon, we have read a part of Lord's Day 27, which deals with who should be baptized. We've also read a portion of Article 34 of the Belgic Confession. So you might say, not only are we biblically committed, we are also confessionally committed. And in the third place, to gloss over this matter would also be something that sends a message to all of you, but especially to our children, that really this doesn't so much matter at all. But it does. For the reasons that I've just mentioned, in addition, it also is important for how do we see our relationship with God? And how do we see and how do we approach our children? And what about their education and their training in godliness? And now in saying all of this, I am not saying, and you should take that into account, I'm not saying that this is a salvation issue. Indeed, I'm not aware of any Reformed theologian either today or yesterday who has ever said that those who deny infant baptism cannot, ipso facto, be saved. But still, it does have an impact, an impact on what we believe and how we see our children and live our lives. And so, beloved, let's turn to this sensitive matter together this afternoon. I preach to you on the theme, what should believers do with their children? Deny them, dedicate them, or baptize them? So three things, what should believers do with their children? Should they deny them? Baptism? Should they dedicate them instead? Or should they baptize them. Well, let's begin this afternoon with a little bit of a historical overview, and then when we do that, we see that this matter of infant baptism is a matter that has a long history. Indeed, from the time of the early Christian church to the 16th century, there was common agreement that the children of believers should be baptized. Parents would take their children to church either sooner or later, and they would request them to receive the sacrament of holy baptism. In the 16th century, however, a new reform movement arose called the Anabaptist movement, and members of this particular movement insisted that this age-old practice of the Christian church was actually unbiblical and unwarranted. And indeed, they declared that infant baptism was actually invalid, and that all who consider themselves Christians needed to be baptized again. They needed to undergo what they said was a so-called believer's baptism. And as for the children of believers, they could not and they should not be baptized until such a time as they came of age and could give a mature confession of 
their faith. Now, why did this new opinion arise finally in the 16th century? Well, it has everything to do with the corruption that came and entered into the medieval Roman Catholic Church. By the 16th century, the Church of Rome baptized just about anyone and everyone. Whether they believed or not, it didn't really matter. They got the sacrament. And in addition, Rome taught that that baptism dispenses some kind of special grace that can actually and has the power to wash away your sins. That's what question and answer 72 and 73 of this Lord's Day deal with in particular. So needless to say, this lack of discipline in this church and this stress on magical baptismal power did much to weaken the Christian church. And so in terms of some of their criticisms, the Anabaptist movement was correct. And yet, as with most reform movements, there was also an element of overreaction. These days we talk about throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and I think you know what that means. And that's what also happened with respect to infant baptism. Instead of limiting baptism to believers and and denying that it has any and all magical powers, the Anabaptists went to extremes. In the first place, you can say the Anabaptist movement adopted a very biblicistic approach, as we call it. In other words, you need to show me a text. You need to show me a Bible passage, or I'm not going to believe it. Where does it command me in the Bible specifically and clearly and implicitly to have my child, to have Kaylee Elizabeth baptized here this afternoon? And so you see, instead of looking at Scripture as a whole and as a unity, they they divided it into two. You have an Old Testament, they said, that no longer really applied, and a New Testament that is now everything. And instead of studying God's dealings with His people throughout the Bible, they rejected what God had done in the Old Testament and concentrated only what they considered to be valid in terms of His dealings with them in the New Testament. In addition to being biblicistic, those in the Anabaptist movement also insisted on redefining the church. In other words, they said the church is not really the covenant community of God as much as it is a regenerated community, a believers-only type of community. Only believers, they said, really belong. Only the born again have an actual place here. Only the adult baptized have standing. In short, they diverted from the biblical model. And what is that model? Well, for example, if you turn to the book of Deuteronomy, there Moses addresses the whole Israelite community on the plains of Moab. He addresses the fathers and the mothers, the children, the parents, Everyone is addressed. 
And notice when he does so in the book of Deuteronomy, they're all considered to belong to God's Israel. If you turn to the New Testament, you hear the Apostle Paul, Peter, John write their letters. And when they write their letters, they're always writing to the whole church. They don't write, for example, to some of you who are true believers in the church of Corinth, to those who are really truly sanctified in Christ, and those who are actually called to be holy. Paul doesn't write that. Neither does Paul say to the adult baptized saints in Ephesus or to God's elect strangers in the world or to the chosen lady and her children. That's how Peter and, and John speak and write. It's the whole community, the whole church that they're addressing, not just a part of it. Of course, you might ask, well, did that mean then that all who were addressed on the plains of Moab by Moses were saved? Are all of those who are addressed by Paul and Peter and John, are they redeemed? No. Remember, Moses also went on to speak about the blessings as well as the curses of the covenant. And the Apostle Paul and Peter and John continually tell the people of God that they need to live a life of faith in Christ, a new life in the Spirit, not a worldly life, not a life of the flesh, but a new life. And as they write these things, they say, everyone belongs, everyone in the church has standing. They all have rights, but they also have responsibilities. So the question is, who belongs to the church? We would say believers and their seed, but the Anabaptists say no. Only believers, adult believers, belong. And as for their seed, they do not belong, and they cannot really belong until they make a credible confession of their faith and are baptized. In other words, in Baptist churches, children have no official standing, no official place. They're not members. At best, you can say children in those churches, sorry to say, are, are potential members, members in, in waiting. Now, you will understand that that position is not without its problems and tensions. My experience over the years is that any number of people argue quite strongly about adult baptism only until they get married and then they have children and then they start wondering, what about our kids? Then the discomfort level starts to rise. 
And then many of these parents cannot accept the Baptist position that these children have no place, that they have no standing in the eyes of God or church, that they're not real members. They feel that then their children are in no man's land, spiritually speaking. And they're right. So what do they do? Well, they opt for something that is relatively new in the history of the Christian church, and that's what's called infant dedication. It's a ceremony in which parents of Anabaptist conviction take their infants to church and dedicate them to God and to His service. Such parents stand before family and friends and congregation and make sincere and serious promises about what they will do for this newborn child, how they will raise him or her, especially how they'll raise him or her in the fear of the Lord, and how they'll model the Christian life before them, and so forth. Why, it's almost, almost like baptism. The only difference is there's no water, there's no sprinkling, and that's why some have called dedication a waterless baptism. But is that the only difference? Is that the main thing that sets apart this particular position from the Baptist position? Now, there's something else that we need to see, and something that's even more, I would say, disturbing, and it's this, that when the parents are busy dedicating their child, and, and I don't doubt sincerity, but the parents are making the promises, well, what about God? God is silent, and that's not good. You need to understand that dedication at bottom is a ceremony in which parents are making commitments, but in which God is not making any commitment at all. He's standing on the sidelines. He's at best watching in the wings. He's making no promises. God is waiting, waiting for the child to do something. Now, there have been some attempts made to underpin this ceremony of dedication with biblical references. Some, some people say in the Christian community that this is like Hannah when she presented Samuel for his service and she dedicated him to the tabernacle service. You remember in the book of Samuel. Well, the problem with that is, is that Hannah made a very specific vow for Samuel called the Nazarite vow. You find it in 1 Samuel chapter 11, or verse 11. Very specific, very specialized, very unique. Others refer to Luke chapter 2, the verses 22 to 24, where, where Jesus is presented in the temple, and they say that's an illustration of infant dedication. 
But yet that too is problematic, seeing that Joseph and Mary are here meeting the requirements of the Old Testament law regarding purification and the firstborn. In short, there is no biblical support for infant dedication. That's why someone like James Bronson, who wrote a very interesting and informative book called The Promise of Baptism, says, as a halfway measure, infant dedication conflicts with the theology underlining both believer baptism and infant baptism. And he says, there is no meaningful scriptural support for the practice of infant dedication. And then he also says, with little precedent in church history and no clear scriptural warrant, infant dedication should be discouraged. So, beloved, where are we? If the adult Baptist position only is an overreaction, and if infant dedication is to be discouraged, where does that leave us? Well, surely it leads us back to re-examining the position for children to be baptized. And you can see and you can hear that it's a position that's very clearly articulated on the basis of Scripture in question and answer 74 of Lord's Day 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's rather instructive to look very closely at those words of the Catechism. I know they're confessional words, they're not biblical words, but they're saturated with biblical support. For openers it states, infants as well as adults belong belong to God's covenant. In other words, it's declaring right up front that both adults and infants live in this wonderful reciprocal relationship of covenant with God. And even more specifically, it is saying that believing adults and their seed live in covenant with God. That together, adult and infant belong. Now, you might wonder, on what is that based? Well, it's based on the testimony of Holy Scripture. Notice it's based not just on New Testament testimony or Old Testament testimony, but actually on both. You see, underlying this particular approach is the conviction that there really is only one God, one people, one book, one salvation. What we have here in Scripture is the unfolding story of God with His people which stretches from Genesis to Revelation. And what does it say in that unfolding story? It says throughout, That the children of believers, like Kaylee Elizabeth, are special. You know, ages ago, God came and he made a covenant with Abraham. But you know, it wasn't a covenant only made with Abraham in isolation. It was made with his descendants as well. As God says to Abraham, to your descendants I give this land. And later on, God confirmed this covenant, and he said, I will establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you throughout their generations to come to be your God 
and the God of your descendants after you. And note in particular that phrase, the God of your descendants. This God is not just the God of Abraham and of all the adults that follow him. He's not just the God of the healthy and the well. He's the God also of Abraham's descendants. The God of the little ones. Both the healthy as well as the handicapped. Young and old are all in covenant with him. But notice as well, there's more for the catechism adds something in that opening line when it adds the words congregation. And you might wonder, why does it talk about covenant and congregation? Well, it does so because it wants to say that children not only have a place in this relationship with God that we have, but they also have legal standing in God's congregation. Consider, for example, the great covenant renewal ceremonies that you find spread throughout Scripture. Who were present when the covenant was renewed? Who were entitled to be there? Who were included? Well, in 2 Chronicles 20, King Jehoshaphat leads the nation of Israel in sacred assembly. And who are there? It says, all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood before the Lord. The whole community was there because the whole community, young and old, had standing before the Lord. And later on in 2 Chronicles 31, references made to the genealogical records and who were listed there. And verse 18 says very clearly, they included all the little ones. Again, they have legal rights. And later still we come to the New Testament and a dispute arises, as you may know, between the Lord Jesus and his disciples about the status of little kids. You know, the disciples, they don't have much time or use for those little kids running around near Jesus. And hence, they don't want to grant them any kind of access to Jesus whatsoever. They're kind of a, a nuisance that you tolerate, you know. And what does Jesus say? Do not, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. It's obvious in the eyes of Jesus, these children also belong. They have standing. As in the Apostle Paul takes the same approach, by the way. He writes to the church in Ephesus and addresses his letter to the saints in Ephesus. And who are among the saints? Well, also the children, because look at in chapter 6, verse 1, he, he speaks very directly to the children in the congregation, and he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. He doesn't ignore them. He addresses them. And so children belong. They have a place both in the church 
and the congregation of God. But then if children of believers enjoy membership in the covenant and congregation, they also enjoy something else. They enjoy, as it says here, the promises of God. The catechism says, through Christ's blood, redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them. Promised to Kaylee and to the children here, no less than to adults. And if you ask where that assertion comes from, well, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. On Pentecost Day, the Apostle Peter is preaching to Jews that come from all kinds of nations around the Mediterranean Sea area. And his preaching is filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're told that it cuts the ears to their hearts. And in desperation, they cry out, brothers, what do we do to be saved? What shall we do? And Peter's answer Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and to all those who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. So to who belongs Peter says, the promises of God? To who belongs the great promise of forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ? Peter says it belongs to you, and it belongs to your children. The promises are for the entire covenant community. Yes, and because they are heirs of the promise, they also have a right to the sign of the promise. And you know, of course, in the Old Testament, the sign of the promise was circumcision. In the New Testament, they have a right to the promise of baptism. And if you ask why two different signs, one in the Old and one in the New, well, there is really no difference in terms of what they mean or signify. We read from Colossians chapter 2, and it uses circumcision and baptism interchangeably, indicating that they really mean the same thing. Now, the real difference between circumcision and baptism is not in the meaning, but in the administration. Circumcision is a blood ceremony. It entails the shedding of blood. But then Jesus Christ has come, Hebrews says, and What did he do? He put an end to all sheddings of blood. So a new covenant requires a new bloodless covenant sign. Baptism replaces circumcision. So, beloved, when you take it all together, and there's so much more that could be said, we need to say, The children of believers belong. Your children belong to God. Kaylee Elizabeth Togaretz belongs to God. She belongs to God's covenant. She belongs to God's congregation. She has the promises of God. She has just received the sign of these promises. 
And so taken together here is something so much more than baptism denied or baptism replaced with a well-meaning ceremony of dedication. Here is baptism as, as God's sign and seal, God's initiative, God's call. How blessed you are as Christian parents when you realize and believe that in this baptism, the triune God is coming to your children. He's not waiting, and he's not watching, and he's not standing on the sidelines. He's not twiddling his thumbs and waiting what's going to happen to your son or your daughter. We read about that in Isaiah chapter 44 as well. Now, once they are born, God claims them. He says, they're mine. These are my children. He sets them apart from the children of unbelievers. And he promises that as God the Father, he will adopt them. As God the Son, he will redeem them. As God the Spirit, he will renew them. Your children, in other words, belong to the triune God. And we can rejoice in that claim. We can take great comfort in knowing that. We don't know what's going to happen to our children. Not all of our children grow to maturity. Not all of them live to see old age or middle age or teenage years. But we know they belong to the Lord. And he will wrap them in his everlasting arms. And of course, all of that speaks of promise, but Scripture also says along with promise, there comes obligation too, right? Our children are baptized, which is a glorious thing, but our children also in time and as they grow. And there's the vital task of parents they need to appropriate, to make these promises of God their own. Yes, our children need to repent and believe. Our children need, as the form says even, to be born again. Our children need to live out of faith. Our children need to serve God in holiness and righteousness all their days. And to love Him totally and completely and utterly and continually. That's what we should teach and model to our children. And it will be a mighty blessing to them and a source of abiding strength. It'll anchor their lives in times of trouble. It will direct their lives in times of confusion. It will empower their lives in times of weakness. Because no matter what, I belong to God, and God belongs to me. What a blessing it is to know that our God is a God of the generations. Our children belong. They belong to God.
Amen.